like you were saying that Joy mm. was telling you you have a perspective on it. But now you just told the Bay how I have my wife's name. Appreciate that. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Oh, we're not doing that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. Bro, bro, sorry, bro, bro, please. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> we've already said her name before on the show. It's all good. <laughs> I'm just... <laughs> The, the man who demand the, the man who demands confidentiality just out somebody else. <laughs> I'd be outing everybody, man. <laughs> Welcome to the B side. The music's not This is the Music Snobs Podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Isaac and Jahan. Episode 5 topic, Are You a Stan? Are the superfans of today valued experts and a vital force in the world to hear new music, or are they a cancer on music appreciation? Let's get into the origin of the word Stan. Uh, it was actually born out of a song by Eminem uh, that he released in 2000 on the Marshall Mathers LP. Uh, Stan is the name of a troubled, obsessive fan who ultimately commits suicide and kills his pregnant girlfriend who is taped up and locked in a trunk of his car as they drive off a bridge. The term was then transformed about a year later uh, into a diss to refer to a copycat MC by Nas in his song Ether on the Stillmatic album. Uh, but now, Stan is uh, a socially acceptable badge of dedication and uh, also part of our common vocabulary that, that uh, extends beyond music. Big groups of superfans, Stans, probably the most famous is Beyonce's Beehive. B or Bay? I, I want to get it right because I do not want the Bayhive. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Right? Even um, even a mispronunciation is punishable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, res- I mean, you got to respect that. The There was an article that I read in The Guardian where they called the Bayhive. They referred to them as perhaps the most dedicated group of superfans um, on the planet. Uh, another large group, another f- famous group uh, is Nicki Minaj's Barb's. Barb's have uh, been referred to as a force of nature, according to Rolling Stone. Uh, if Nikki, and this is a quote, if Nikki is their queen bee, each member is a buzzing worker bee intent on project, on protecting and projecting her majesty at all, <laughs> at all costs. <laughs> um, you know, even Prince, even Prince has, uh, has the Purple Army, who actually this weekend are wrapping up, uh, I think it's the third celebration an annual four-day conference that happens uh in minneapolis uh centers at paisley park where there's panels and reunions and concerts and and even tours and tickets go from i think like 550 dollars for a general ticket up to 1050 1050 dollars for a vip all-access pass these groups man i mean they are part cheerleader part street team and part enforcer <laughs> enforcer in what way right good word frank nitty type enforcement mm. where people that i mean i think it was kid rock i think kid rock had made some off reference to to nikki fans didn't like and here's the thing too i mean this is decentralized yeah i mean there's no there's no it's not like it's not like a fan club they're like frank nitty but not on the payroll there you go <laughs> yeah they're like a they're like a non-profit frank nitty <laughs> right pro bono pro bono right. <laughs> pro bono services <laughs> but um using you know using social media instagram in particular twitter in particular um but even facebook uh even though instagram and twitter are probably more prolific because of the immediacy uh of the nature of the platforms you know to be able to somebody pick something up they feel some kind of way about it. They begin to retweet and hashtag within, I don't know, minutes, hours, depending on what the what the offense, and I'm using quotes, whatever the offense is. Yeah. <laughs> A group of people will just literally just target that offender's social media account. Kid Rock, I think, 
and on it like an annual basis gets gets barraged with with honeybee emojis just to let him know that we know where you live socially i guess you know let me before you guys get get too deep into this let me i, I gotta push back a little bit i gotta ask a question at the same time you said that stan is a uh, has become a common part of our lexicon and i think you even said beyond music mm-hmm. i i never hear this term i never hear anyone say this in real life well it's a verb now it's no longer a noun it's a verb but i never hear anybody in real life say yes yeah, so-and-so is a stand for so-and-so yeah i think i think that depends on the crowd that you run with i think certain demographics will probably use it all the time and some demographics won't ever use it even if I use it, I've only ever used it very occasionally. Like like Nas had used it as basically a diss for, you know, some nut job. I guess. <laughs> but there's a very big demographic now that really embraces it um, and owns the term, just like Arthur was saying. And that's a real transformation from its origin. Uh, I don't I don't think that I don't think you can argue that it hasn't transcended its original meaning. A lot of people will be familiar with the Eminem song, and they might have thought at the time. Stan some sounds like fan. Um, he's found a clever way to mm-hmm. per- create a character, give it a name, etc. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, personify. Right, uh-huh. but more cleverly than that, if you think about it, and I'm sure he intended this, Stan is a portmanteau mm-hmm. of the words stalker mm-hmm. and fan, and that really mm-hmm. suits the material of the song. So there's a real switch there. It's gone from this song about a guy, a very vulnerable person with suicidal and homicidal impulses to being embraced as a badge of honor or, or you know worse than that a badge of authority mm-hmm. um you know people nowadays freely say i stand for so and so i stand for this do, do you hear this hold on hold on though do you hear this in real life though or do you just hear this define i mean define real, real life no no because i don't outside, I don't outside of with, yeah outside of digital no, media because i do my best with varying degrees of success not to hang out with nut jobs <laughs> but you are in proximity well, to, in, in real life you're in proximity to nut jobs you come across them i've been to your hood <laughs> we've hung out <laughs> no on the real on the real i mean no disparagement to anybody who's obsessive about somebody if that's your thing that's your thing but but to answer your question does anybody older than a teenager say lol in real life i was just thinking but, that but yeah I, I think that's <laughs> but i think that's uh i'm not trying to um to nitpick but I'm, i think that and maybe i'm jumping ahead a little bit but i think as we get deeper into the discussion i think that that is a, an important um distinction to make because we do things online that we don't do in real life and that extends into our lexicon, into the words we use. There's a whole episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm about uh, Larry David um, just kind of snapping on this uh, a friend of his wife's because she used LOL in real life. Like she would say it. And his, his dude, his friend was like, man, can you tell her not to say that? It's so annoying. You know, and it was like this funny thing because it was pointing out that, yeah, we do things online that really aren't acceptable in real life. So I'm just saying that to speak for, I'm sure that there's some listeners out there who have started you know listening to the show and they're like what the hell i've never heard stan you know i've never heard someone call it a stan which which yeah which which is very focused but it's not you know it's 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 not you know a stan <laughs> you know i ride for prince and i was talking to my wife the other day and um i was you know telling her about what this show was going to be about and everything you know and she said you know i don't i don't really consider you a stan and i said really because now, mind you, you know, I, I've spoken at two conferences on Prince. You know, I've interacted with authors, you know, biography authors, and uh, both domestically and internationally. You know, I mean, I, I, I know people, mm. right? And I'm a go-to person for, you know, Prince questions, but they only ask me certain kind of questions because they are, you know, they know, well, don't ask them that. We can Wikipedia that. You need to just... You can talk to Arthur, ask him about something that's worth his time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they, people could approach me like that. You're a stand for yourself. <laughs> as as I, I'm an Arthur stand as well. John, you're an Arthur stand, aren't you? I stand for no man. <laughs> I'm sorry, Arthur. I but what she was, but the thing about it was, you know, and I'm saying, well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I do these things. You know me. She's like, yeah, but here's the thing, though. It's like, you know, you can criticize Prince, and you know still love him 
Exactly. Whereas exactly. a Stan is you just lost whatever, whatever the whatever the scenario is, you know, it's ju- it's a justified scenario. And if you disagree, you either don't get it, you're too old, you're out of touch, or you're just a full on hater. Okay. Which is a whole nother level. Certainly, the way I see it, we're talking about examples where the love takes on um, a certain level of blindness. Yeah, but this gets us to the thing where it's like, okay, well, is it is it fair game? You know, to really go in on someone who criticizes the object of your adoration. You know, and do artists see, uh, um, do they see controlling their fandom as a responsibility, you know, or a risk? Well, how do you control that, though? Well, first of all, if you're talking about going in on somebody like that, now you're talking about trolling. So are you guys saying that stands have a little bit of troll in them or there's there's some sort Too of... Too often that's their job, bro. Absolutely. That's their job. That, that comes with a territory. Absolutely. That's the enforcement. That's the enforcer part of of, of my opening. Okay, so they enforce by trolling. Okay, so uh, do, do I think that that's do they have, they have their is that fair game? No, obviously not. Um, but do artists do the artists themselves have any responsibility? I mean, how would they control that other than well, other than what they occasionally I do see artists. Wait, wait. You said trolling. That's another internet word. But let's call mm-hmm. it what it is. Mm-hmm. In the typical instance, you have somebody who interprets something, whether it's intended or not, as a criticism of the object of their affection and the way the internet works that snowballs and pretty soon you've got a David and Goliath situation where tens of thousands of people are tormenting the person who said it originally whether they deserved it or not let's let's call it what it is it's it's bullying so particularly in this climate of mental health awareness um, it's hard to argue that an artist a famous artist doesn't have um a responsibility to look at what their fan base is doing unless they only want to support causes like that when it suits them but by the same token I also understand Arthur's question and it might well be a risk for artists to step in and say hey hang on this is not cool pull it back etc it's so competitive now shutting down any criticism of your work showing your work only in a kind of amazing light where everybody's praising you that's very valuable right now. And and before the internet, before social media, record labels and artists would spend hundreds of thousands on getting this kind of response. You know, it's, it's the street team to end all street teams. And maybe some artists even think, I think it's very inappropriate if they do, but maybe some artists think that by maintaining a distance and a, a so-called dignified silence, they can get to say, Oh no, it's you know it's not me, it's them. It's got nothing to do with me. I can't control it. Mm. And maybe they feel comfortable claiming that because you know you don't you don't have to do anything to set these guys mm-hmm. in motion. You don't have to unleash them. They're like perennially <laughs> unleashed, like the goddamn kraken. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shout out to Zeus. <laughs> Can you? It's very similar to politics and and political and political action committees, PACs. Yes, mm. exactly. Mm. It's like, well, I didn't, the candidate will say, well, I didn't run that ad. Great analogy. Right. Some packed it. Some packed it. Right. 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 Yeah. There was a, there was a situation in, uh, last summer, the summer of 2018 where, uh, Nicki Minaj's, uh, album Queen, uh, was delayed because she couldn't get a Tracy Chapman song cleared, a sample of a Tracy Chapman song cleared. The Barb's went after Tracy Chapman, um, about... You need to clear this song so that Nikki can release her album. Did it work? No. Tracy Chapman ultimately sued Nikki for the sample. <laughs> I'll take it none of the barbs were named in that lawsuit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely not. But just to draw a distinction between the kind of things that we're talking about, you know, Tracy Chapman's a celebrated artist, but she's not an unknown person with an open Facebook page or an open Instagram account whose accounts are then searched and poured over and then their employer is contacted and their fiance is contacted and their mother is contacted and their little brother is contacted. You know, that's some next level harassment. And, you know, you do hear about that from time to time. You know, adults do this. I mean, we're living in a climate now politically. But what I guess what makes this different, I think, has to do with is you know, I, I, I do think that this is the result of the dominance of internet culture over the art, because I really do feel that at that kind of volume, this does extend beyond 
just the music. So do, where do you think internet culture should draw the line? Well, making it not normal for people to get terrorized online, that would be a good start. Maybe it's something to do with the keyboard here. I don't know. People people get gangster when they're behind a keyboard. like, And even on email, will say things that they might not necessarily say in person. Yeah, but that, that, that email I sent you yesterday, Jahan, I would say that to your face. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're getting at. Right, right. But for real though, it's, you know, that anonymity that a keyboard and a screen gives you, that breeds a, um, it breeds a particular brand of courage. Yeah, and that's something that, yeah, I agree 100% with that. I think what's interesting though about what you said is that, Arthur, you said something about internet culture over art. Yeah. And so it sounds to me almost like these stands are, may start off, you know, of course, they're in love with this artist's music. But then it becomes more, it becomes less so about the art and more so about the ability to stand. In other words, the ability to stand, standing in and of itself as a verb, becomes their, I don't want to say their obsession, but their hobby or their, their, their passion. You know, it's almost mm-hmm. like that's more important to them than the actual music. It's the ability to stand, the activity or the action of standing. I think some of this is about identity. I think this is about your, 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 um, what is your social media identity? What is your internet identity mm-hmm. on Twitter or on Instagram? It is basically who you follow, what you post, and that's it, really. It's basically who you follow and what you post, and I guess kind of who follows you or how many followers you have. Mm-hmm. But really, your what you post and what you what you say, are, you know, that reflects your beliefs. You know what you stand s a s s t a n d what you stand for um and so what represents you and what you represent so it's a very narrow kind of um it's a very narrow keyhole to look at somebody from you know to kind of view somebody from so in real life obviously we have a whole lot of other things we have all the unsaid unspoken things that we observe about a person that really gives us a better sense of their identity online you don't have that and so I think that these stands, S-T-A-N, these stands, they get obsessed with that that online identity. These these people, you know, I'm sure that some of them are like this in real life, but I, w- I would guess that the vast majority of them are very different. But if this is a person who has crafted, you know, this identity online and is presenting themselves in a way that is much different than their real life selves, I that that to me not to be play psychologist but that to me kind of explains some of this um, vitriol and some of this aggressiveness um, mm-hmm. uh, and some of these you know and and, they, and again to John's point where you're anonymous of course it gives you the shield and the strength the courage to do and say things that you would never do in real life mm-hmm. so I think that those things combined are kind of you know explain why. Um, this phenomenon exists and that's why to my point earlier i feel like it, it, these is more so about the act of standing like they're yeah they may love beyonce's music they may love everything about uh Nicki minaj but that there are many people who do who love things those things they don't get online and go off about it you know spend you know hours a day online talking about it so i think that they don't evangelize that action of standing and that's a good word of evangelistic you know it's mm-hmm. like yeah there's a lot of people who believe in a certain faith they don't go to other countries and try to demand that other people believe these faiths. You know, there's, and, and in some cases, um, you know, uh, uh, colonize or exploit um, to demand destroy. that and destroy yeah, civilizations right. in order to make sure that people follow their faith. So yeah, this is this is a modern kind of form of, of, of evangelism, and I think it does speak to that that identity that these people have crafted online and their protection of that. Their protection of the perfection of the identity that they craft. Because everybody's got to present as perfect, right? It's either, you know what, Jay, you feel me on this. It's either all good or everything is fucked up. You know what I'm saying? It's either all, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah, in between. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's either all good or I'm depressed. And it's interesting that for so many people, staying quiet isn't an option. Thank you. That's what I was just about to say. The mm-hmm, irony mm-hmm, is that the internet mm-hmm. gives you the ability not to be judged. Don't say shit. <laughs> Don't yeah, don't right, post right, the picture. Right. If you don't post mm-hmm. the picture, you, type it. you, you can't be judged. <laughs> but look, you know, I want to I, I, I do want to counter this, though, because another a, another um, let's say purpose, for lack of a better word, but another purpose of stands 
and I said it at the top of the show, you know, is to promote street team. Um, um, and, and, and amplify the great things that they feel and sometimes factually these artists do. So at the risk of making this the Beyonce show, which is not the intent, you know, Beyonce had enough power to be able to get Vogue magazine, you know, to hire the first black photographer to shoot last year's September issue that featured Beyonce on the cover. Isn't that something that should be acknowledged? 100%, but is that the result of superfans though? Yeah, what's that got to do with Stan? <laughs> Arthur just looked at me like... <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's got more to do with her commercial leverage as an artist rather than um, her fans kind of bringing an intense pressure to bear on Condé Nast or Anna Wintour, for example. Like every artist has, every artist has people who love them. But I think what we should be talking about is that category where that love goes to an extreme level. My question to you guys though, very quickly, I know we, I know we gotta move on, but very quickly, the, the, point, the point of um, music discussion and having interaction with other people who want to talk about the music that you're listening to, is obviously not to agree upon everything. It's to spark new thoughts, spark you know conversations, spark um, different avenues to explore, blah blah blah, and to kind of inform us all um, and take us places that we didn't really you know expect to go or couldn't get by ourselves, couldn't get to by ourselves. So I feel that you guys talked about Beyonce. To me, one of the best examples of standum recently was when her, her, her younger sister's album came out. Um, when Solange's When I Get Home comes out and immediately, um, I guess people listened to it as soon as it dropped and hit, you know, almost like they were listening to it with their phone in their hand waiting to tweet or post about it. Um, and you got this onslaught of, you know, almost as if the, you know, the Messiah had come back and dropped an album, it's, you know, it was like about instant classic, instant classic. Um, and even better than that, bro, <clears throat> I can't even use some of the adjectives they use. I can't remember all iconic. of them, but okay. you know, it was iconic was almost like the beginning point. It was like, that was, that mm-hmm. was track one. Track mm-hmm. one was iconic. Then mm-hmm. we just went up from there mm-hmm. and even they were, cause they were, I think the album dropped in early March. So they were saying that you know, Black History Month was extended, you know, because of, of Salon. It was just... Yeah, Women's History Month was March, and then she did you know, two things it was, the same it, was, it was hyperbolic to the point of, it was just an extreme amount of love. And and, 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 yeah, it's, and it's okay. Yeah, talking about. Right, nobody's talking about it now, but it's okay. But, if yeah, you have that, <laughs> right. It's right. okay if you have that vibe, but my point in bringing this up is that, to me, it left fandom and standum when it got that whole sense of if you don't get it, then you don't understand. That was the right. that was the vibe of all those posts. And yeah, you, I think all may- that instant classic stuff does a disservice, a direct disservice to the artist. Mm-hmm. We talked about it on a couple shows ago with um, when my, when when uh, Daytuan was with us talking about um, the instant classic and how you need to listen to an album a few times. You know, you need to absorb it, you mm-hmm. need to digest it. But right now, standum is is de- is demanding that. You listen to album as quickly as possible so you can jump online and start standing for it. Yeah, I think that particular example, it might go more to your earlier point about identity in terms of who do you want, who do you want to show people as representing you, whether you listen to them or not, whether you like the music or not, whether you're actually looking at them as a musician or some sort of, you know, socio-political representation of your ideal um, I think it. I think it might go more to that than being a super fan for someone's particular music or a stand for someone's particular brand of music or album or whatever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. That's my point. Absolutely. So look. So should do, should we look to the social media platforms to control the abuses? I mean, how integral are the social media platforms to the creation and spread of stands? Well, I think when you use the term abuse. All uh, Instagram and I believe Twitter and I, I think even Facebook does, has now where you can report somebody. You know, you can say this post is, you know, out of pocket and mm. you can report them. That's the technique that a lot of stands use, though, by the way. But oh, Jesus. But really, what is. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's oh, wild. Yeah. That's wild. 
Um, this person is abusing Beyonce. You need to take her post down. <laughs> you need to take the this, whole account down. This person said they didn't like uh, uh, Solange's album, so you need to take their their account down. That's wild. But I think though that that's my point though is how do you define abuse though? You know what is mm. abuse? Um, you saying it's subjective? Well, and to well, a certain extent, I mean, there's obvious there's abuses, obvious yeah. abuse, and then there's some abuse uh-huh. that's that's subject that's subjective. So, well, how well, can at, Instagram police of- that? It's not music, but look at one of the accounts that's responsible for the most amount of abuse and getting the most amount of, you know, fanatics uh, mobilized. It's Donald Trump's account. Mm. Be careful, man. Hey. We, we may have some Trump listeners, man. <laughs> you, you, you fucking up our money, man. You know? Listen, 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 listen. You we know may have are, some right? Trump, you know, like Mike I'm said, Chris Rock. Republicans buy, sh- quote, buy sneakers too. No, to quote our <laughs> immortal poet, Chris Rock, they'll listen to this and they'll be like, he ain't talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to come back to the question, yes, I think bullying of all kind, online bullying of all kind, it should be taken seriously by the platforms that profit from this kind mm-hmm. of high traffic content. And a lot of time these posts, even by like the super, super fans, they generate thousands and thousands and thousands of retweets, hundreds of thousands sometimes. And clearly there's an aspect of profit tied up into all of this for the online platforms and point blank, they have a responsibility, just like they do for electioneering, just like they do for market manipulation. Let me let me ask you guys a question though, and I apologize if you've, if you've kind of already answered this between the lines. Is standing hurting music? Is it hurting music culture? Well, while we think about that, let me just uh, take a quick episode break and talk about our sister show, Snobs on Film. Um, our current show that we've got has to do with it's it's the same format. All three of us were talking about film as opposed to music. Uh, which our current episode is called hashtag Bond Two T O O, looking at the character James Bond going into his his God Lord twenty fifth film uh, in uh, to be released and- next year. How that character is going to evolve uh, in the Me Too age and Um, and you should listen to that show i'm sorry but really you should listen to that show because we were very prophetic on that show because they just oh yes we usually are prophetic yeah uh snob stradamus struck again because we we (laughs) we we um they just had a uh bond press um event i guess it's on on, uh in jamaica because they're starting the filming of of the of bond 25 right now so a few days ago, they had a Bond 25 um, event when they introduced the cast and they talked about the script. Um, go on, after you listen to our show, go on YouTube and check that out because our show, I think, very correctly dove into a lot of the issues that you're going to see um, reflected in the next James Bond movie. So I, I would urge you to go check it out. Okay. Again, Snobs on Film, wherever fine podcasts uh, are distributed. And... Uh, Lastly, I just want to thank everyone that has uh, subscribed to Snobs on Film, uh, subscribed to the Music Snobs, and has left reviews. And we encourage reviews. We like to get this feedback. Um, we also appreciate the ratings if uh, um, you're so inclined to do so. And um, follow us on Spotify. We are available on Spotify. Just hit that green follow button and you'll never miss an episode. And I think I think we should start taking listener questions and comment and answer some questions on the show that's that's just my personal belief so listeners if you want to send in stuff so i can convince these other dudes that we should actually be talking to you one-on-one and we should actually interact with you more um do that you know but i i I can't do it without your help because nobody listens to me here you know what leave us enough reviews and we'll think about it see see you just said we'll think about it it's like yo i'll take it under advisement But yo, reviews on whatever platform you listen to us through, that helps. Even hate mail, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's just useful. It will get us up in the rankings and it will help us to keep bringing this show to you. So back to, Isaac, so back to your point about... Yeah, I like how you made my question a cliffhanger too. That was dope. Go ahead. (laughs) People are like at the edge of their seats now. They're like, oh shit, I got to find out what the answer to Isaac's question was. That was dope. Okay, so repeat it though so people can, you know... It's like coming does, back to the episode. Yeah, does standing hurt music? Yeah, or music and, is it is it hurting music culture? That's all I want you guys to tell me. I, well, I think uh, I don't even know how to short answer it. I think it, I think it's hurting music appreciation 
and if you want to and if you want to call that cult put that in with culture fine you know that's that's fine too but i think it i think it hurts music appreciation because you can't have you can't have rational debate <laughs> about the merits of you know what i mean about the merits of of of, of the material mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like i can't you know i i can appreciate an album i can appreciate an album i can really 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 like an album that might be the debut album of an artist that has inklings of long-lasting classic masterpiece level songs on it but i can't make that judgment after two days with it you can only make that judgment 25 years later 10 years later maybe 50 you know what i mean maybe even five years after the after the artist release you know i mean in a vineyard if you're making wine you know what i'm saying you can't have i mean there's a reason that wine bottles have dates on them because it tells you how long that wine has been fermenting how long is you know how, how long it's 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 been it's been lord let me not get on wine because i'm not a wine drinker so I'm i was about get, to say we're about to be the wine snobs <laughs> hold up new show new show but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the I mean, wine a, snobs <laughs> with three cats who don't drink <laughs> right you know i mean we'll, now, we'll get scoop back that that one. there's a right right there's a i'm saying you know there, there's a reason why people still there's a reason why but people still talk about michael jackson's thriller i mean you know there's a reason for it yeah bruv i mean easy answer yes it's one of the things that is killing music you can't claim to love music as a concept like i, I don't care who you are um, you can't claim to love music as a concept if all your love is focused on one or two artists. There's just so much that you would not have heard, you would not be aware of. You, you have to open your ears. You know, I want to bring up another another intended or unintended function of, uh, of stance. Uh, and that, that it, pretty famously too, pretty, pretty openly. Um, the recent documentary on Michael Jackson... Um, and this child abuse allegations by uh, by two adult men that, that that claim that they were abused by Michael Jackson uh, when they were when they were young boys, without stands, you know, with that recent documentary on Michael Jackson and those child abuse allegations, have decisively erased his musical legacy. When the documentary came out, there was almost an instantaneous backing away from Michael Jackson. Because it was like, oh, well, well, wow, they they're telling these very detailed accounts, you know, from when they were children. But there were stands who organized and by proxy defended Michael Jackson from the grave. Uh, I remember uh, Jahan sending pictures from London of ads on buses and bus stations um i don't remember was there a billboard too that was a defense of michael jackson and funded by his legacy funded by the fans not by the estate uh but by the fans you know to 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 have that counterbalance and that counter argument for a defense without that would it would it would it just be you know decided that even though michael jackson was acquitted of child molestation charges even though he was acquitted in you know in court that because of this documentary would his legacy just go away you said decisively erased his musical legacy I, I i have to say i don't think that if you if you believe the allegations or if you don't believe the allegations whether whichever side you're on i think that we can all agree his musical legacy has not been erased people still i mean he's there was a lot of uh media coverage of that when that that documentary dropped um but his well, I mean, even oprah winfrey even oprah yeah. winfrey backed away from michael jackson in a very public way in the context of social media if enough people say it's one way then the common belief is like oh well it must be that way oprah's oprah's move to me was a commercial move in other words she understands her base who her supporters are and she understands that uh, the majority of her supporters are going to demand that she back away from Mike or going to support her for backing away from Mike. So she made that that business decision. But I don't I don't I'm, I think what I'm saying is I'm not really understanding what your question is. No, I get it. He's asking whether a group of motivated people can turn the tide of public opinion. Of course, mm-hmm. of course they can. If you take the example that Arthur raised, the Michael Jackson leaving Neverland example, all the coverage 
um, even you know even in newspapers or online editorials in newspapers, it seemed to adopt an overwhelming presumption of guilt based not necessarily on the information that might have been in the public domain beforehand, but was the information presented in this documentary. In the wake of that, you had many people online, including some high-profile celebrities like Oprah Winfrey or Louis Theroux, etc., who seemed to embrace the documentary and took the position that he was guilty. The Michael Jackson stands, and stands is important here because, because they're fans who knew about him and seem to have a lot of information that contradicted or could at least contradict the accusations presented in the documentary. And the stands posed their counter-arguments in a very systematic, researched, persuasive way. Yeah, it was it was like evidentiary. It gave it gave it gave Michael Jackson a defensive voice, a voice that he himself could not provide because he is in fact deceased. But to be fair, uh, we established early on that one of the key components of being a stand is that you were going you're going to defend your guy, your girl, no matter what. Mm-hmm. So how much if I'm a, if I'm a, if this were a court of law and we were talking about this, I would, you know, and I was going after the stands and, you, and Arthur, you, you know, you presented your case as far as, well, these stands, you know, they did do a, a job of defending Mike because he couldn't speak for himself um, and everybody deserves a defense, you know, uh, supposedly. I would say, well, your your stands, though, you've already said that your stands are going to defend him no matter what. So he could be right, wrong or whatever. They're going to defend him. So yeah, I, but I this, think that, this defense was it was pretty well, but it does well thought yeah, out. It's pretty well thought out. <coughs> it wasn't but, just a blind, but it didn't, it. it didn't start. It did not start from a uh, it didn't start from a fair place is what I'm saying. It started from a place of we are going to defend him no matter what. OK, so I do see what you're saying, but I don't think that you can use who makes an argument or where an argument comes from as a tool to automatically disregard that argument or or at least always disregard that argument you're right sometimes you know consider the source you've got to you've got to look into who's saying something before you decide whether or not to take it seriously but you also have to look at what's being said and you know you you mentioned if this was in court yeah you'd have to look at that material dispassionately and evaluate it for what it is as hard as that may be sometimes no, I, I, I agree with you. I would, my, my only point was to say, and again, to be fair, just to be balanced, that if you start out from that point of I'm going to defend them no matter what, then you run the risk of even if you came across things that don't support your argument, even if you come across things that actually make the other person's argument more valid, you're not going to reveal those things. You know, you're going to you may even suppress those things. So that was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No argument. Right. That was that was my point as far as saying, yeah, I get what you guys are saying. But to be fair, those people started at a point that wasn't really balanced. All right. Roundtable. One question. Three answers. (laughs) This episode. We major. What was your most memorable encounter with a celebrity? Good or bad, right? It's just your most memorable encounter with a celebrity. Absolutely. Um, okay, I'll go first because to be honest, mine's not going to be that, as, I think, as good as you guys' is because for the simple fact that there's so many of them I can't actually say because um, formally. That you cannot? That you can't? I can't say because formally, as a journalist, I was you know fortunate enough to interact and interview and talk to um, a lot of famous people. And there was many situations excuse me, where uh, certain things happened or certain things were said or just things that, you know, it involved things that I knew I could, one, never print and I could never actually, you know, say or talk about. So um, I will say this, though. This this one has stuck with me. Um, All right. I was, and I believe, you know, not that everybody who's listening listen to this show has heard every show we've done, but I think I even mentioned this on a previous show. Um, we have stands. We do have stands. <laughs> we, we've got stands. <laughs> then it don't matter what the fuck I say. <laughs> We're gonna get love. <laughs> Let's end the show right now, then. Um, yeah. So I was. I did a, 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 a article. I got commissioned to do an article for I believe it was Honey Magazine. Um, many, 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 many moons ago, and they asked me to do it. It was a last minute thing. I was coming in. I was coming back into Chicago from an um, from New York or somewhere. And the situation was I had to land 
get in the car and drive to uh, this hotel where this uh, singer was staying at. And um, everything had to work out perfectly as far as the time. You had to land on time, get in the car on time, pray to God the usual traffic on the Kennedy wasn't as bad as it usually is and get to, um, I believe it was in the Gold Coast, um, get there on time. So I did all that and got there and she came downstairs, met me in the lobby. This was a singer who I had, um, <laughs> who I, I <laughs> I'm not gonna you say- You still have a crush I'm on not gonna, I'm not, Everybody had a crush on this, this singer. I had a crush on this singer. Yeah, including Fife. Uh, Fife Dog had a crush on this singer and wrote a, a, a instant classic. <laughs> a limerick. Iconic <laughs> um, verse about this singer. So Dawn from, Dawn from Invo comes downstairs. Um, sits in front of me and she literally I'm not you know it may sound like I'm making this up but she was glowing Don Robinson Jay I'm telling you she was she, Don Robinson you ain't gotta say Don Robinson though it's, it's Dawn from in, in Vogue Dawn but, from um, in Vogue are we talking about Last Dragon Glow we talking about next level I mean I, I don't want to get I know our show is like rated R but NC-17 sometimes but I don't want to get too it was like some you know what I'm saying it was just like she was just like <laughs> she floated downstairs sat down in front of me um, flawless skin. I don't even think she had makeup on. She was just gorgeous. And, but I was a professional at this point, you know, so I was, you know, I was cool, calm, did my, did the interview. We had a great time, great conversation. Um, and, you know, she was there. This was, this was uh, the, uh, oh God, why is this leaving my mind? Raphael, it was her, Raphael Sadiq. Lucy Pearl. Lucy Pearl. Lucy Pearl. It was Lucy Pearl days. Um, so that, they were, they were here performing at the House of Blues. Um, and so, you know, we had a really long conversation about uh, not just Lucy Pearl, but the In Vogue day. She told me a lot of things um, that happened uh, between her and In Vogue and uh, what's, what's, what's uh, Foster, what's the, uh, the producer? Oh, 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 Foster McElroy. Yeah, Foster McElroy. Yeah. So, but I can't remember how it happened, but I sent her the long form of the piece. And I think at that point I knew that it was going to be greatly edited um, to fit kind of the, the honey aesthetic. So I sent her kind of the raw version and I see, you know, I emailed it. I don't remember how much time passed, but one mm. day I get this call, the call to end all calls, bruh. Dawn from Invo calls me and she's like her words. I can't remember exactly if I'm paraphrasing her. She basically called to tell me that she read the piece and she broke down in tears. Mm. So at that point, I'm like, I made Dawn from Invo cry, not in a bad way, you know what I'm saying, in a good way. So that was like, you know, putting that on my resume, that's at the top of the CV. You know, Mr. Perry, we want to hire you. What do you, I made Dawn from Invo cry, you know what I'm saying? It's like, what else, what else do you need? That's hire me, I'm good. Right. So that moment, you know, I, I can think of a lot of times in my career, not just as a journalist, but since um, working in the creative industry and just, um, as a creative director, a copywriter, and just writing things and, and encountering people and you know celebrities and having all these conversations that really, because you know as you know celebrities are people too, so they want to get things off their chest that they know they can't really you know really talk about. So if they get comfortable with you, they start talking about shit and it's like okay, I can't print that or I can never tell anybody that. There's been a lot of those. That moment um, meant a lot to me. You know, because here's a person that, you know, yeah, we, I'm, you know, we joke about it. I had a crush on or whatever, like everybody else. But In Vogue hit when I was, I don't know, early teens, maybe. Um, and so this is a group I knew about for a while. I've been watching her for a while. And yeah. And so when you are at that point in your career as a writer and you write something and somebody who you, you know, you admire calls you and says, yo, you hit it. You know, you hit this, hit these points so well and you define these things so beautifully that it made me cry that was you know that and she took the time out to call me you know what i'm saying it wasn't like yeah. she could have just email and say hey this is great but she called and we had another conversation um so that was one of the that was probably the encounter that i can that i can reveal that i think was uh that stands out as special to me mm. that's a good one that is a good story that is major yeah i can't i can't imagine how that would have felt and i can understand like putting yourselves in the shoes of an artist so much is said about you Particularly, you know, if you've left groups, if you've split with people, etc. So much is said about you that's negative. For someone to tell your side of things and you know feel like you've been heard and feel like you've been captured in that way, I can understand how somebody would feel touched by that. All right, who's next? Mine's whack, by the way. Jay, I've got like five of yours. I know five of yours by heart. So if, if yours is whack, 
if yours is whack, it's because you're holding back. Because I got a lot of yours. Okay, well, this isn't a funny story or anything, but when it's it's safe for radio. <laughs> when I um, when I was very young, I met um, the members of Mint Condition, and it was. They, they were opening for Tony Braxton and they were her band basically during the show and Tony Braxton had come to London. I was working at The Gap after school and they came in the store and just through a weird quirk of fate I met the members of Tony Braxton's band and we got talking and they invited me to the show and um, me and my cousin Rusty and we went to and they invited us backstage and introduced us to Mint Condition and backstage we just spent the whole evening talking to Ricky from Mint Condition, Stokely and Chris Dave. It was probably the first, one of the first times that I'd met a, a major musician, in my eyes a major musician, um, skill-wise skill a major musician. Just to hear them talk about music and to and, and give advice and just to hear them talk about music, um, not just their own music, but all kinds of music. Like we were talking about um, just all kinds of stuff. Um, I was I was touched that they took the time, and it was it was a blast. It was just definitely still to this day one of my favorite memories. Can you remember anything specifically that they said? It was, or I should say, is there anything, any piece of advice that they gave you that actually? Not to say what else, that the other things they said weren't true, but I'm saying one piece of advice that really kind of like hit you and it's like it stayed that way. Uh, yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about music. Um, we talked a lot about Brazilian music, Afro-Cuban. Um, Stokely was explaining that he listened to a lot of it and he was um, suggesting artists. Uh, we talked about the Minneapolis thing with Ricky, etc. And Chris was talking about his background. And um, I think it was just for me the joy of talking about music the way that we do but that was less common for me back then to find people who were famous in my eyes and incredible in my eyes was yeah it was definitely dope anyway arthur all right this is a somewhat of a crossover a uh, snobs on film crossover because this is not a celebrity encounter with a musician so I was young. I was 12 years old and um, I was in Chicago um, for the summer. I grew up in the Bay Area uh, and came back to Chicago summers and winters to visit family. So I was staying with my dad, who stayed at that time, stayed uh, in the Gold Coast, which is uh, on the north side of Chicago by the lakefront. And I'm with my cousin and we're walking along uh, State Street uh, around uh division and elm and oak and for people that know the city and um you know daytime sunny day you know we just two 12 year olds were walking back from whatever getting something to eat or whatever 12 year olds did back in 1983 um and we're walking north on state street and passing us were a couple man and woman um beautiful woman and i remember she had this flowered you know dress on and um when we passed them maybe i don't know not not many but maybe like 10 paces i just stopped and just i just dead stopped in my tracks and it was one of those things where my cousin he's still walking ahead of me not realizing that i just like stopped you know and he's like he's still talking he looks around and whatever he's like wait you know what are you doing and i'm and i turn around and i say look look at look at look at that couple the man had on like um kind of like a silk shirt some kind of pattern on it and he had on solid red pants and was wearing gold boots right <laughs> typical said, day said, in chicago typical day in <laughs> chicago and i said i said i said um i said jay i think i think that's richard pryor you know my cousin was like no nah, i ain't him that's not him i'm like no 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 come on come on come on come on and he's like, what are we going to do? We're not going to walk up on Richard Pryor, you know? And I'm like, no, man, you got to come on. You got to come on. And so um, we're looking in storefronts that were, you know, that we, you know, we had already passed. So we were like, kind of like looking in shops and everything like that, kind of looking through the windows. And I spot him in one store. 
right and so i go in and my cousin i think he was too scared to even come in i know i just remember being by myself so if he was still with me i sorry i just <laughs> forgot all your existence at that point so he's like looking through some kind of clothes or some kind of rack you know and i kind of go up to him and i'm you know i mean i'm 12 so i'm looking up obviously he's taller than me you know and he kind of looks down and he says hey little man how you doing you know and i say um mr Pryor." <laughs> You're my absolute favorite. <laughs> and and the look on his face when I said that was one of, I can only describe it as part pride and part disgust because, you know, Richard Pryor in 1983, <laughs> he was most known for his recorded material, his recorded stand-up material. That nigga's crazy. It's something I said wanted live on the sunset strip you know and his concert movies were you know of the same material um i think the the movie that he had out that was most current at that time would have been stir crazy mm. with gene wilder directed by Sidney Poitier. Mm. um and that was a pg movie you know but still i was just like you could tell I me mean, like look man you are <laughs> like i've listened to the favorite. albums like nah like, i ain't talking I about can, that stir crazy shit i can to go the through albums. mudbone right now <laughs> <laughs> And he's looking at you like, let me talk to your word parents. For word. <laughs> where, where are your parents? <laughs> right, right. So when I said that, you know, he had this look on his face and he was like, oh, you know, okay, it's great. You know, it's like he just feel awkward, you know. And I asked him for his autograph and he says, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Um, I don't, but you know, I don't have anything to, to write on. And it wasn't like I was walking around with a notebook. So I just patted my pockets or whatever. And I had a dollar in my pocket. So I handed him the dollar mm. and I guess he had got a pen from, you know, from the proprietor of the store or whatever. And in red, like felt pen, you know, he wrote to Arthur, mm. best wishes, Richard Pryor, 1983. Please tell me you, you still, still have that. You still go there. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> I got it. All right, that is a full lid on this episode of the Music Snobs podcast. Uh, again, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes via the podcast app or your iTunes app uh, on your Mac or PC. Uh, we are also in Spotify where you can hit that green button and follow us. Our IG handle is The Music Snobs. Our Twitter handle, Total Music Snobs. You can search The Music Snobs on Facebook. We are online at themusicsnobs.com. And we invite you to check out our sister show, Snobs on Film. Next episode up, following, uh, what, a week later after this release, is going to be on the Avengers Endgame, the final Avengers MCU. <laughs> Isaac mm. Stanfest episode. <laughs> Isaac stands for Thor. Isaac stands for Thor. That's what it is. I do stand for Thor. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right, that's a full live. We we'll see you next episode.